I'll ask that you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Beginning this week, we're starting a series through the Lord's Prayer. And at the beginning here, I want to explain my rationale for beginning this series, why there is a need for it, and uh, what we have to look forward to as we get into it. Matthew chapter 6 We'll be occupying the verses 9 through 13 will be what occupies our focus for the next seven weeks. And as I thought about what to begin preaching to you on, I explained this a little bit two weeks ago. One thing that stood out to Krista and me about you as a church, as we begin to get to know you through the process of our candidacy here, is that you are a praying church. The pulpit search committee prayed diligently. I had the privilege of praying uh, with them as we had interviews. When I was here for the week of my candidacy, I met at 8.30 with a room, in a room upstairs with several men. We got on our knees and we prayed to the Lord. And what a great priority to be a praying church. But another reason why this topic of the Lord's Prayer came to my mind is because it was fresh for me. I had uh, recently finished doing a study of it at the former, my former ministry, and so this was fresh in my mind. Besides this, here are some reasons that I think that we need as a church. We need this series on the Lord's Prayer. First of all, as many others noted, it is significant that when the followers of Jesus asked him to teach them something, there are many things that he could have asked them, they could have asked him to teach. Lord, teach us to preach. Jesus was a compelling preacher. Or, Lord, teach us to heal. He was an astonishing healer. Or, Lord, teach us to have compassion. One of the marks of Jesus' ministry was that he had compassion on the multitudes. But he, they didn't ask him to teach him any of those things, at least not that we know of. What did they ask him to teach them to do? Lord, teach us to, to pray. There must have been something compelling, something astonishing about the prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ as he addressed his heavenly Father. Jesus himself made prayer a priority. We should make prayer a priority. That's one reason I think this series is important for us as a church. There's a second reason, and I'll explain it to you this way. We were made to enjoy a relationship with God. That's what, we're been, what we've been created for. We, you and I are meant to thrive by relating to God, glorifying Him, living in His presence. That's the purpose of His existence. We don't make sense by ourselves. We're like scattered pieces of a puzzle apart from God. We're made to exist in a relationship with God. And what is at the very essence of a relationship? You think about the relationships that you have that, that thrive and that are doing well. It's communication. You have to communicate with someone in order to have a relationship with them. And so it is in our relationship with God. What do we call communication with God? We call it what? It's, it's prayer. And so prayer is at the very core of the purpose for which God created us. So that you and I as human beings could actually communicate with our Creator. Prayer is at the very core of our very purpose as human beings. That's a second reason. Jesus himself made prayer our priority. A second reason we need this series is because prayer is central to the purpose for which God created us. And this leads me to a third reason why I think this series is important for us. It seems if prayer is central to our very purpose of existence, like this is what we're made to do, 
thrive in a relationship with God, communicating with God, it seems like prayer would be easy, right? And natural and spontaneous. But have you found that to be the case? Is prayer just easy for you? You just find yourself slipping to your knees spontaneously in the middle of the day and spending two hours in prayer. Is that really what happens? We can so easily spend our time doing other things but pray. I find prayer to be one of the most difficult things to do. As soon as I try to pray, suddenly the most trivial things become intense distractions. The most minute issues become incredibly important for me to think about. I mean, a hangnail could be something that derails my prayer life because it's so significant. Prayer is so hard. We can blame this on a lot of different things, but when it really comes down to it, here's the reason. Here's the reason prayer is so hard. When we pray, we are engaging in spiritual warfare. When we kneel in prayer, suddenly we become aware that there's more to this existence than than wood and and concrete and, and flesh and blood. There is a spiritual world. There is a there are dark forces that the Bible speaks of in Ephesians chapter six that oppose us. There is in my heart a flesh that's in rebellion against the God for whose purpose I was created, in in whose presence I was created to thrive. There is my flesh that resists that. There's a world that doesn't want me to pray. There's a devil that doesn't want me to pray. The third reason I think it's important for us as a church to consider this series on the Lord's Prayer is because prayer brings us into spiritual conflict. We would be naive as believers in Christ were we to ignore this dimension of our lives. There's a fourth reason. The first one is that Jesus himself made prayer a priority. Prayer is central to the very purpose for which you and I were created. Prayer brings us into spiritual Warfare it makes us aware of the battle that we are engaged in. But fourth, if you can learn to pray well, you can learn to live well. If you can learn to pray well, you can learn to live well. Let me explain what I mean by that. I just said that prayer brings us into a war, but it's a good war. When, when you pray, you are approaching the creator of the universe. You are coming into the presence of the one who holds all things together. He keeps the sun just the right distance from the earth. He keeps the stars in their place. I mean, you are you're talking to the creator of the universe. Prayer is, let me just make this clear, prayer is not living in a fantasy world. Prayer is not a kind of wishful sort of existence. No, Prayer is not removing ourselves from the realities of this world. Prayer is bringing the realities of your your life into a greater reality. And that is into the presence of the one who can actually help you and change you and change your circumstances. That's what prayer is. Prayer is not some transcendental meditation intended to empty your mind of rational thought. No, prayer is putting into your mind real thoughts about God. If you could learn to pray well, you can learn to live well. I said earlier that prayer is central to the very purpose of our existence. It's, if you think about an eagle soaring in the sky, I mean, you look at his wings, they were just 
shaped for flight. The feathers, the very internal structure of them were, were just designed. The architecture of that bird is designed for soaring. So the architecture of our soul is designed for communion with God. But, but how absurd and, and tragic it would be to see an animal like an eagle hopping along the ground, letting his wings designed for flight dragging behind him. So tragic would it be for a believer intended for communion with God to fail to pray. If you want to see this fleshed out, just go to the Psalms. Don't turn there at this point. You don't need to, but I just want to tell you, if you're to read the Psalms, you're going to read and, and, and listen to the heartbeat of, of the psalmists who are just taking all of their trials to God. I mean, in the Psalms, you, you encounter the full spectrum of human emotions and struggles. And what are they doing? They're bringing them all to God in prayer. And in prayer, they turn from, from defeat to triumph and, and from d depression to delight in God, from, from anger and, and envy and jealousy to contentment in the presence of God, all through prayer. If you can learn to pray well, you can learn to live well. These reasons, and for many more, I think that this series is important for us as a church important for us as individuals, important for us as dads and moms, as husbands and wives, as, as children and students and workers in whatever role that we find ourselves in, here is an important series, an important study. What's the context of this, what we call the Lord's Prayer? It's nestled in the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably the most famous, beloved, often quoted sermon in the Bible. And this is an important sermon because it is Jesus the King coming with his royal manifesto. He's describing what his kingdom citizens look like. They are those who are poor in spirit. They, are, they mourn, but they will be comforted. They are the ones who are willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And, and they are ones, not only do they live life completely different than the rest of the world, it's counter-cultural, it's counter-intuitive, not only that, but they pray, pray in a very different way as well. And so this, the Lord's Prayer, comes within the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus is setting forth his royal agenda as the promised king. And then I want to point out the structure of this prayer. Why are we studying it? What I discussed at the beginning where it is in the Sermon on the Mount, and now what is its structure? If you could just scan your eyes over that prayer, you'll see that there are six petitions. And the first three have to do primarily with God's priorities. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are the first three petitions. They're having to do with God's priorities. And what do the, the second three set of petitions have to do with? They're more oriented toward our needs, right? And there's a very deliberate structure here. First, God's priorities. Our petitions are oriented towards God's priorities. And then what? Our needs. And this order is important. Even though you may not begin every prayer you pray with the, these words exactly, after all, these were not meant to, meant to be slavishly repeated, yet it is a pattern. It's a pattern. It is the underlying logic of, of prayer that we 
come first burdened about what God's agenda is, that his name be hallowed, that, that his kingdom come, that, that his will be done. And then our needs can follow. And so that's the structure of the Lord's Prayer. But in this message, what I want to do is focus on the first four words. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. You might ask, well, yeah, leave it to a preacher to make an entire sermon on just four words. (laughs) But actually, these four words, this whole idea of our Father in heaven, it's not just limited to this section in verse 9. It actually occupies the preceding verses as well. And so, what I want to do is emphasize to you why it matters so much that we address God as our Father in heaven. I wanted to introduce you to the series, the importance of this whole series, and now I want to focus on these four words. But let's bow our heads and close our eyes and have a word of prayer together and ask the Lord to work in our hearts through the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you see us and you know our hearts. And you know what we need before we even ask it. Lord, we do need to be changed by your word. There are in this room people who are hurting, perhaps some who are angry, some who are drifting, some who are so busy. Lord, would you draw our attention to you so that we can worship you as you delight to be worshipped. Help us to understand and apply your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know that I was born in South Korea. My parents are missionaries there. And when I was a teenager, my dad would take us to a busy intersection where there are wide sidewalks and lots of foot traffic. And we would pass out gospel tracts, try to have conversations with people about the gospel. And on one occasion, it was a cold winter day. I don't remember what month it was, but I remember being extremely cold. I'm going to have to get used to weather here, I guess. It's very cold. And this this man walked up to me, and I offered him a, a tract, and he took it, and he looked at it. And then he asked me a question that I've never been asked before. I never had to explain this before. He said, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Of course I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and I begin to explain to him why I, I believe that. And, and then I was met with a barrage of counter-arguments as to why Jesus is not the Son of God. And as a 16-year-old, I countered that with a barrage of more arguments what, from what little Bible I knew at that point. And after what seemed like a half-an-hour discussion, I remember my hands were shaking so hard so much that I tore a page of my Bible while leafing through trying to find more proof text. Um, I discovered that I was speaking to a follower of the religion of Islam, a Muslim man. And since that day in South Korea, I have learned a little more about Muslims and their religion. I've learned a little bit about how they pray. You can read this yourself. Prayer for the Muslims is one of the five 
pillars of the religion, these acts that they must uh, carry out in order to be good Muslims. From the very beginning, the whole approach to their prayer must be precise and proper. They have to have a, a prayer mat to avoid defiling themselves on anything that was on the ground that might have been unclean. They have to be dressed in just the right way. They, they have to pray toward their holy city, to the holy mosque in Mecca. The prayers must be rehearsed. You, you cannot rehearse these prayers in English. You have to rehearse them in Arabic. These prayers involve a complex sequence of raising hands and, and standing and sitting and kneeling and turning your head this way and turning your head that way and, and doing all sorts of things, and it must be memorized very precisely. All this must be repeated at five specific times during the day, at sunrise, right before noon, afternoon, sundown, and night, over and over and over again. But what interests me most about the prayers of the Muslims is, is the way they address their God when they begin their prayer. When a follower of Islam, a worshiper of Allah, begins to pray, he prays this way, Allahu Akbar, which means Allah is the greatest. What a striking contrast between the way a follower of Islam addresses his God and the way Jesus, the Son of God, teaches his followers to address their God. Not God is the greatest, although yes, He is, but our Father. What an astonishing difference. What a radical contrast between God is the greatest, which He is, but our privilege of addressing this God who is the greatest in the most intimate terms, our Father in heaven. The question I want to ask you is, is, does it really matter? How much does it impact your life? How much does it impact your approach to, to your trials and, and your burdens and your, your struggles? How much does it impact the way you live that you, as a follower of Jesus, as a believer in Christ, get to address God Almighty as Father? Why didn't Jesus teach his followers to pray, Our Sovereign Lord, or our gracious Redeemer, or dear Jesus. Of course, we know there's nothing wrong with addressing God in any of these ways. After all, in Acts chapter 4, the church, after they were beginning to face persecution, they themselves addressed God as sovereign Lord. We know that Stephen, when he was being stoned to death, addressed Jesus, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But the way that our Lord Jesus taught us to pray and address God is our Father. And whether you approach God as your Father in heaven impacts whether you are anxious or trusting, greedy or content, hypocritical or sincere, lost or saved. And that's why I want to spend the entire first message of this series on these four words, our Father in heaven. And I hope to show you from this from the meaning of the words themselves and from the preceding passage, why it matters so much that we approach God as our Father in heaven. And here's the first reason. It matters. It matters that we approach God as our Father in heaven first because it impacts how we perceive God. It impacts how we perceive God. Let me just clarify right at the outset that the, the privilege to call God 
Heavenly Father is not a privilege that belongs to all of humankind. God is not the Father of every human being. This is not a popular idea. What a popular idea is to say that God is the Father of all and, and humans are our brothers and sisters. We're one big human family. And, and while it is true that God could be considered the Father in the sense that He is the source of all, we find this in a couple places of Scripture, in, in, the, in a more important sense, the fatherhood of God is limited to those who have put their trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is very clear throughout Scripture. In the book of John, in chapter 1 and verse 12, it says that the ones to whom God gives the authority to be called sons and daughters of God are those who have received Jesus, the Son of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes that, that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've been born of God, become his children, not through any old path, not through any religion, not through any way of efforts. We've been born as children of God, the Father, through Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus was emphasizing in John chapter 14 and verse 6 when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What comes next? No one comes to whom? The Father, except through me, except through Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you are not trusting in Jesus as your Savior, God is not your Father. And if you are, you have this astounding privilege of calling God your Father in heaven. It impacts how we perceive, perceive God. When you think about each of these words, in combination, they utterly astonish us. Consider this the word Father. See, you, you, take, you take the word Father, you take, you take the, word, the words in heaven, and then you take the word are, O-U-R. And, and by themselves, they're, they're not astonishing. By themselves, they're, they're rather normal. We, we can get our minds around them. But, but taken together, our Father in heaven does it matter that we approach God as Father? I'm going to take each of these words, Father, in heaven, and our, in that order. It could be that when you think about this idea of Father and God being your Father, what comes to mind is not good. Because your perception of your Father has not been good. There was a young man that I knew years ago who had such a Father, distant, hateful, aloof. And to him, the idea of God being a father was not a good idea. It was not a good memory. It could be that some of you were, were abandoned by your father. Abused by your father. Hated by your father. And so when you hear this idea of God as, as Father, that there, there's something in you that just finds that repulsive. But, but you must remember that this Father is not just any human Father. You cannot let your idea of God be shaped by, by the idea of, of your failing Father. He is your Father in heaven. 
Completely different kind of father. No faults, no flaws, no abuse, only giving, only love, only care, only generosity. You cannot let your perception of God be shaped by a perception, a bad perception of your earthly father, because it is not just any father, it is Father in heaven. We have this idea of what it means in heaven, a distant realm of perfection and peace, infinitely removed from the street-level turmoil of our topsy-turvy existence. It could seem like, when we, when we think of heaven, it, it seems so far removed from our existence, right? Just, just heaven, way up there, unimaginable. So, Father in heaven, and then we come to this incredible word, our that this, this Father, who is, who is unspeakably good and infinitely distant, we could call Him our Father. In combination, these words express the highest privilege afforded to a human being. That the Creator of the universe, the one who keeps this very globe in orbit, is the one you can cry out to as Father. If we think of God only as Father, but not in heaven, we'll approach Him casually, irreverently. If we think of God as only in heaven and not our Father, we'll approach Him cowering and, and, and at a distance and, and aloof. If we approach Him as, as a father, think of Him as a Father in heaven, but not ours, we're not saved. But to be able to address God our heavenly Father is to be able to fear Him without terror of Him, to be able to love Him and adore Him without being casually or irreverent toward Him, and to rejoice in Him as our Father. Yes, it matters that we call God our Father in heaven because it impacts us, impacts how we perceive Him. There's a second reason. It not only impacts how we perceive Him, it shapes how we pray to Him. It matters that we approach God as Father in heaven, not only because it impacts how we perceive Him, but also because it shapes how we pray to Him. And this is where I want to bring your attention to verses 5 through 8 of Matthew chapter 6, because this is precisely what Jesus is drawing out here. The contrast between a person that can approach God as his or her father and a person who does not approach God as father. It shapes how we pray to God. Notice that in verses 5 and 7, Jesus is pointing out ways that you and I, as followers of Jesus, are not to pray. We're not to pray like this. He points to two negative examples of prayer. The first, in verse 5, is the prayer of the hypocrite. You see it there? Jesus said, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. And then verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Two negative examples. And then in, in each case, he presents a contrasting positive example, a positive way of praying. Don't pray like this. This is not the way you're to pray. Now, here's the way you are to pray. You see it here in verse uh, 6. But when you pray, 
In contrast to whom? In contrast to the hypocrite. When you pray, go to your room and shut the door. Pray to your Father who is in secret. What about the, the second negative example in verse 7? Don't be like, don't be heaping up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. He says, you can pray to your Father who knows what you need before you ask Him. So let's look at this hypocrite first of all. What is the hypocrite doing? Verse 5, he loves to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that he may be seen by others. What is the hypocrite going after? What's his motive? What's his goal? What's his agenda? Here it is. He wants people to see him. He's not praying to a father in heaven who really cares about him or about whom he really cares. What he's doing, he's using prayer simply as a means to a self-centered end. What do you think the hypocrite's perception of God is? If he's even thinking about God, God is merely something that he can use to get attention from other people. What he does by himself, he completely ignores any perception of what God might have of him, and he's just thinking about what other people think of him. By contrast, the person who prays to the Father prays to someone who sees the public you and the private you. You pray to the one who sees you not only when you're sitting in a pew at church, when you're milling in the lobby, or in the, any of the classrooms, or, or at work, or, or wherever you are. Not only the, you're praying to the one who not only sees you there, but who sees you in your, your secret thoughts, your most private moments, your most, your most intimate longings, and, 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 and what's going on in the deepest part of your heart. That's what your Father sees. Unless we approach God as our Heavenly Father, we will use prayer as a mask for our hypocrisy or we will forget that God Himself is our reward. This cuts both ways. When Jesus says in verse 6, look at it there, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It sobers us. It's a warning because we cannot hide our sin from God, but it's also a comfort. Because our Father does know. He, he does see every hidden tear. And He hears every stifled sob that you have. Your Father knows and He sees and He understands. That's the Father that you pray to. There's an older friend of mine, um, not too familiar with how social media works, was intending to send a private message to his wife and accidentally posted it on her wall, public. I don't know if you've done anything like that. I haven't, thankfully. Not that I'm aware of, at least. If I have, please let me know. And it was something that he thought was private, and it ended up being public. Now, how would you feel if that happened to you? How would you feel if something that you thought was secret ended up being public? If you're like me, the words like panic come to mind, or uh, leave the country, or uh, hide or delete my social media accounts. No. 
we get this idea of fear, and it's often because our private lives are different than our public lives. Thankfully, this friend of mine was a godly man, and the message that he wrote was one of the sweetest messages uh, that possibly. It was just, it was incredible. It made me think all the more of him. And yet, often our inner life doesn't match our outer life. Now, what could possibly motivate you to have such an inner life that it doesn't matter whether people know what it is because what you project on the outside is the same on the inside. What could possibly motivate you to do that unless there was someone that was always seeing no matter what and you cared about that someone more than any other someone? What could possibly motivate you to kneel in prayer in your closet and not care how, who knows how long you spend or what you say? It's if you pray to your Father who sees in secret. You see how it is so true that approaching God as Father shapes how we pray. We should not pray like the hypocrites. We should pray sincerely, authentically, with the reward that's offered only because our Father who sees in secret will reward us. It matters that we approach God as our Heavenly Father It keeps us from being hypocritical in our prayers. That There's a second reason. It keeps us from being babblers in our prayers. You see this. The second negative example that Jesus presents here is in verse 7. He says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Jesus says, you're not supposed to pray that way. Here's what the babblers are doing. They're going on and on because they think that somehow they could coerce God into listening to them. How do you think such a person perceives God? What is, what is, the, what is the babbler's view of God? The babbler's view of God is this. God must be somebody that, that, that I could coerce into giving me attention. That if I, if I speak enough, if I'm passionate enough, if I am repetitive enough, then maybe God will hear me. You know, I think that you and I can fall into the same sort of trap. That we tend to think, maybe if I do my devotions consistently enough, maybe if I'm kind enough to other people, then, then God will hear me. That, then God owes it to me to listen to me because I've done something for Him. You see what the thinking is? It's somehow I could coerce God by, by my efforts. You notice what the motivation of the babbler is. What does he think? He thinks that he'll be heard, not because God cares for him, not because God has a special relationship with him. Why does he think he can be heard? Because he talks a lot. Because he's piling up phrase after phrase. So many times, you and I can fall into this pattern of thinking that God will answer our prayer based on my performance. Jesus says, don't pray that way. Why? That's not the kind of God that you serve. The kind of God that you serve is not a God who can be, who can be, his arm, whose arm can be twisted into answering your request. He's a God that, that actually knows what you need even before you start talking. 
He's a God that actually cares about the need and wants to answer the need and knows better than you do what the need is. That's the kind of God you serve. Why? Because you approach him not as a distant, aloof, transcendent God. You approach him as what? Your Father in heaven. It matters because it shapes how you pray. Jesus says, don't be a babbler in your prayer. Don't think that God can be coerced to answer you just because you do a lot of stuff. It's because he cares for you like a father. Krista and I are still in our years of child-rearing. And having our first child awakened in me a passion of love I didn't know before. As those of you who are parents or have loved like parents know. Before Anna Grace turned one, Krista and I were walking through a store with her, and we saw this doll, or Anna Grace saw this doll. There's bright colors and lots of buttons, and it had this kind of crinkly texture to it, just perfect for a kid to like feel and touch and make noise and keep them awake at night when they're supposed to be sleeping, that kind of doll. And, and as soon as we, we walk by it, and, and Anna Grace, this little baby, she reaches for it, and she like, I think she hugged it to herself or something, and, and Krista and I were just smitten. It was like, she's going to have that doll. I mean, that is going to be her doll. We start, even argued with each other as to who would it be from daddy or mommy, okay? This is an important doll. There is just something in the heart of a parent that's just like, what a give to my, what a give to my kid. I want to give them the best. I, I want to make sure that they have, have more than what I had when I grew up. I want to make their circumstances better. I, I want to give to them. I didn't know that I could think like that before I had children. Never knew that I could be so passionate about giving to another person. I never knew that I could be so alert to my children's needs. Even to this day, I'm at a playground. There's a bunch of kids playing around. I hear someone cry, Daddy! And instantly there's something in me that goes, like, Who needs me? Do you think that the heart of your Heavenly Father is any less alert to your need? Do you think that the heart of, of your Father in Heaven is any less quick to come to your aid? Any less knowledgeable about what you need? If, if I, as a frail and, and failing and fallen daddy, if I have such a craving to give to my children, can you imagine the heart of your Father in heaven? He knows all about you. He knows about your wayward son or daughter. He knows about the sickness you've not told anybody else about. He knows about that unfulfilled dream. He knows about that crushed hope. He knows about that dull heartache. He knows about that piercing loneliness. He knows it all. Your Heavenly Father knows and He cares. I wonder how much 
heartache and grief we bear needlessly. All because we fail to remember so often that when we pray, we pray to our Father in heaven. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, there is no burden you bear that your Heavenly Father doesn't know. There's no heartache that you have that He doesn't care about. And if His answering your needs don't, doesn't seem to be on your timetable or in your way, it's not because He doesn't care. It's because He knows better. Because He's your Father. You can go to Him. You can run to Him. And if you're here this morning and you've not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have no such Father. There's no greater concern of mine than to, than to know that anyone who walks through these doors would, would come to a place in their lives where they would know that God is their Father. And the only way that you could know that if you, is if you repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ who died and rose for you. That's the gospel. If you haven't done that, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, you can do that today. If you need somebody to talk to, talk to one of, one of our pastors. Talk to me right after this service. And that's something that you can do. Our Father, thank you for this unspeakable privilege of addressing you as your children. And I pray that we would not forget that as we live our lives, as we face challenges and triumphs, that it would shape our prayers and impact how we perceive you so that we can worship you as we should. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.